Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 13 of Unknown Orbits, Gernsbach's Legacy, the Science Fiction Ghetto. I'm Patrick Baird. And I'm Steve Reitze. Tonight, we're going to talk about Gernsbach's legacy in terms of how his style of science fiction that was predominant in amazing stories influenced the early years of science fiction, whether it was for good or for bad. Now, I can give you the argument for bad by quoting Brian Aldiss from his book, The Trillion Year Spree. To quote, it is easy to argue that Hugo Gernsbach was one of the worst disasters ever to hit the science fiction field. Gernsbach's segregation of what he liked to call scientific fiction into magazines designed to contain nothing else, ghetto fashion, guaranteed the setting up of various narrow orthodoxies inimical to any thriving literature. A cultural chauvinism prevailed, with unfortunate consequences of which the field has yet to rid itself of. Gernsbach, as editor, showed himself to be without literary understanding. The dangerous precedents he set were to be followed by many later editors in the field. So that's Mr. Brian Aldiss and his dismissal, harsh dismissal, of Hugo Gernsbach. And a little bit overly academic, I think. Well, odd that you mention that. So The Trillion Year Spree is Brian Aldiss's history of science fiction, very much from his ivory tower perspective. It's actually pretty good. It's a worthwhile reading. It's got a lot of very good stuff in it. But right before he launches into this diatribe against Hugo Gernsbach, he talks about a whole raft of obscure writers from the 1930s like Olaf Stapledon, Franz Kafka, and Karl Kapek. I would disagree that Olaf Stapleton is obscure. He was obscure in his time. Okay. And that's kind of the point that I'm going to be coming to here in the episode tonight. Franz Kafka, I believe, most of his stuff was published after his death. Yeah. So he wasn't popular or well-known during his lifetime. Karl Kapek, yeah, he may have been important and influential, but was not famous or well-known, I don't believe, during his lifetime. You know, and they were all much more literary-oriented science fiction, and that's what Brian Aldiss loved. He loved Aldous Huxley, who I agree is a very good writer and wrote a brilliant book, Brave New World. Was Kapek the guy who wrote Robertson's Universal Robots? Yes. Okay. That's what he's most known for. But of course, Aldiss goes on to talk about a whole bunch of other books that these guys wrote that were probably pretty obscure, I believe. I may be wrong about that. But at any rate, his literary pretensions were very obvious here, that he felt that everything that came out in those early 1930s, mid-1930s pulps were garbage. And the fact that the garbage tradition continued on into later years where you had magazines that only publish science fiction, and somehow that's a terrible thing. If nothing else, Brian Aldiss displays an amazing ignorance of how marketing works and how works of fiction are popularized. But that brings up another little quote for you. 
This is from uh, Peter Nichols from the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. Now, I don't know of a more worthy and important document than the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction. It's definitive. A lot of the things that they have to say in that volume are considered to be highly definitive. And here's one of them talking about the golden age of science fiction. Quote, there is little argument about when the golden age began. The term is nearly always used of genre magazines of science fiction, and it is almost always seen as referring to the period ushered in by John W. Campbell. His assumption of the editorship of Astounding Stories in October 1937. This is a widely repeated trope that John Campbell single-handedly created intelligent modern science fiction. And I'm here to call bullshit on that. (laughs) A phrase I used in the previous episode, firstest with the mostest. He encouraged and he filtered. I think he put his stamp on what science fiction would be, but it's not like he was out in the fields tilling away, creating it from scratch. Exactly. And that's what I'm looking here to prove tonight and also to defend the ghettoization of science fiction as a good thing. So what are we talking about here when we talk about ghettoization? We're talking about what Gernsbach did is he created the first magazine devoted exclusively to science fiction, Amazing Stories in 1926. And The success of Amazing Stories spawned several imitators over the years, one of which was Astounding Stories that existed long before John W. Campbell came on the scene. Now, as we talked about in a previous episode about Buck Rogers, we talked about the importance in the late 20s and the early to mid-1930s of popularization of the genre of science fiction, that science fiction... If you look back at the pulp magazines of the era, starting in the 1920s, you went from generalized pulp magazine that published a lot of different things. For instance, Edgar Rice Burroughs, many of his books, Tarzan and the Mars books, were published in All Story magazine, which, as the title suggested, it's all stories, all kinds of different stories. It had detective stories, westerns, and that was very common. The early pulps were a mix of a number of different popular genres of fiction, including science fiction. H.G. Wells had a number of his stories published in the early pulps. So you went from that to the 1920s. These magazine companies began to specialize, and they began to create pulps for specific genres. And Amazing Stories was one of those examples. You also had Western pulps and detective pulps. Black Mask Magazine, very, very famous detective Pulp began in the 1920s, and they had very high-quality writers, uh, Dashiell Hammett and people like that, in the early issues. So that led to the 1930s, the golden era of pulp magazines, where you had an endless variety of highly specialized magazines. As an example, you had pirate story magazines. Really? You had aviation story magazines. You had boxing story magazines. You had this whole genre of spicy magazines, which were... Uh, oh, uh, True Confessions? No, that was a different form. The spicy, they were fiction, but they were as dirty as you could get 
in the 1930s. It didn't have explicit sex, but it went right up to the line of where you could go in terms of sex in uh, popular magazines. Yeah, I think there was a police gazette. There was a whole line of spicy magazines, spicy detective, spicy adventure, spicy pirates. I don't know. They had very scantily clad women on the covers. Pulps got very, very specialized, and science fiction was one of many. Now, a good example is when Street and Smith, shortly before Campbell took over Astounding, they went through a reorganization and they eliminated a number of titles. Now, one of the titles that did not get eliminated was Astounding Magazine, which is a, an indication that that genre was fairly successful and popular at the time. And you did have many other magazines, Planet Stories, Thrilling Wonder Stories, which is a later Gernsbach magazine, Astounding, amazing, and there's probably a few that I can't remember. Marvel stories, which was uh, by the same man, Marvin Goodman, who went on to found Marvel Comics, who is uh, Stan Lee's father-in-law. So they had a science fiction magazine out on the market. There was a wide variety out there. And yes, Aldous is probably correct in saying that the majority of the stuff published in those magazines was pulpy. There was a publishing change in the late 30s, maybe early 40s, pulp magazines were something like 7 by 10 in size on cheap paper. And to cut down expenses, they didn't even edge trim them. So you had a rough edge. Then they switched to digest-sized uh, Th magazines. Was a, that was a slow transition that started in the 1940s and um, really took hold in the 1950s. Yeah, I personally feel that there is a distinctive change with that. That's actually probably a topic for a later show. I do want to talk about not only the transition to digest size magazines and the content changes you had in the 1950s, but also the rise of paperbacks. The fact that science fiction writers could get books published, which was not much of an option in the 1930s. But getting back to the pulp part of it is that Yes, you had magazines like Planet Stories that were filled with garish soap opera. Every cover had a scantily clad woman with a golden brassiere and a bug-eyed monster pawing her and a guy with a ray gun fighting off the bug-eyed monster. All this is right about that, that there was a great deal of very pulpy hack writing in the 1930s in science fiction magazines. But there was also a whole bunch of really good writers that found their way into the magazines in those years. Let me give you a list. Stanley Weinbaum, Jack Williamson, John Wyndham, Clark Ashton Smith, Edmund Hamilton, Donald Wandry, and Murray Leinster. These were highly regarded or came to be highly regarded authors, many of whom had long careers. Unfortunately, we talked in an earlier episode, Stanley Weinbaum did not. But he wrote a fantastic story, The Martian Odyssey, which was published in a Gernsback magazine, by the way. But, you know, you had existing writers who found their way into the science fiction field in the 1930s, wrote many, many very good stories. They didn't need John W. Campbell to shepherd them along. They were able to do it on their own, by their own talents, and quite honestly, by the talents of other good editors in the field. We talked in the past about Thrilling Wonder Stories and the, the two editors that were involved with that magazine when we talked about Stanley Weinbaum's Martian Odyssey. There were plenty of good editors in the field before John W. Campbell came along. And even Campbell, I guarantee you, you go back and look at the 1938, 1939, maybe even in the 1940s, table of contents of 
astounding magazine edited by the mighty John W. Campbell. And how many crappy stories were there in those issues? I'm sure he had his share of turds that he had to polish because you've got a, a hole to fill every issue. You don't always have Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and Robert Silverberg and a bunch of other people standing by to produce gems for you every month. you got to accept some stuff that's below your standards just to fill a magazine hole. And quite frankly, the readers probably want a little bit of the trash flavor, you know, here and there. So everything, no matter how bad, has at least a few fans somewhere. Right, right. And as we talked about in the Buck Rogers episode... There are well-known science fiction writers who grew up in the 1930s who said, hey, the first thing that attracted my attention to the field was Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. Say what you will about those characters in the comic strip format. They were important in helping develop the field of science fiction because they introduced young people to the concept of enjoying science fiction. Edgar Rice Burroughs, however you feel about Edgar Rice Burroughs. He was in it. My mom read it. I was shocked to find that out recently. My mom read Edgar Rice Burroughs when she was a, a young girl. I wouldn't have imagined. You know, and she's she was the same person that when I was watching Outer Limits or Star Trek or Night Gallery or some science fiction show, she'd walk in the room and go, oh, you're watching that horrible stuff again. She referred to it as that horrible stuff. But yet she read Edgar Rice Burroughs when she was a, a girl. So I don't know what happened, but that's... An important point we've made before, an important point we want to continue to stress, is that stuff that's not considered to be the highest quality science fiction is important if it's drawing in people to the field and making it popular. Yeah. And I think that's what these magazines in the 1930s did. They codified science fiction as a separate genre, and they built enough popularity to keep that genre alive into the 1940s and into the 1950s. Today, you still have science fiction magazines on the shelves today. Analog is still being published. The magazine of fantasy and science fiction, I believe, is still publishing. Yeah. And of course, you know, the books, there's innumerable science fiction books, some of whom become bestsellers, like The Martian, huge bestseller. Oh, yeah. You know, it survives to this day because, in part, the trashy end of the spectrum helped to keep it popular. You don't see boxing magazines anymore. You don't see boxing novels. You don't see aviation stories as a genre anymore. You used to get movies in the 50s and 60s that were aviation movies, you know, about building the B-52 or something, or the Strategic Air Command starring Jimmy Stewart. There's a mild popularity in World War I fighter stories and movies in the 1960s with the Red Baron and similar type of things. But that died out. Those are dead genres. Aviation story, boxing stories, those are all dead genres. You get a boxing movie every now and then, but, you know, it's it's an anomaly. Whereas, how many science fiction movies are, are released in one year nowadays? My dad was a writer, and he wrote several boxing stories. There was a market for it. He was primarily a mystery writer, and I always wondered why he bothered to write those boxing stories. I knew he had a personal interest. I didn't realize that there had ever been a market for it. Oh, sure. It was very popular in the 1930s. The author of Conan, Robert E. Howard, a very fun, funny stories featuring sailor Steve Costigan, which were rollicking adventures, uh, boxing adventure type stories. And they're terrific fun. And there were a lot of other writers who wrote series of boxing stories with some fighter as a main character. That's a dead genre now. 
I think Rod Serling's very first huge success. It was a boxing... Requiem for a heavyweight. That was it. Like I said, they still make boxing movies every now and then, but you're lucky to get one a year and probably more like one every two years nowadays. They don't make aviation stories anymore. That's a completely dead genre. I think there was one in the 1980s. The Western is dying out. Yeah, there's Western TV shows on, and there's the occasional Western movie. Again, like a boxing movie, they're not made very often. But the actual fiction market for Westerns is dying because it was guys like my dad. My dad loved to read Westerns, and my dad's gone. And there are probably a lot of the market for Western fiction is they're dead. They're gone, like my dad. Science fiction has persevered. Science fiction has thrived. Science fiction is one of the most solid genres out there. And it's because there has always been this duality of the science fiction ghetto that had space opera and pulp stories alongside serious, quote, adult science fiction. Now, in the quote from Aldous, didn't he imply that Gernsbach molded science fiction into a specific form, which he also didn't like? Well, he said, the setting up of various narrow orthodoxies ah. and a cultural chauvinism prevailed. So I'm assuming what he's talking about there is sort of the the evolution or the ghettoization of science fiction into the proto-pro-military, pro-United States, chauvinistic, European-oriented version of science fiction. The chauvinism of the nationalist viewpoint and superiority of Western culture and science and pro-military. You're getting closer to what I thought. I was thinking well, that it help, was... Help me draw it out. I don't know if I found the right words, but maybe you can. My thought was that he's complaining that Gernsbach made science fiction device heavy. Well, what else would he do? This came out of stories in electrical experiment. Yeah, he was a radio enthusiast. He was yeah. a developer of radio technology. So, of course, he's going to be... And what was John W. Campbell, by the way? John W. Campbell was Mr. Science. He was the guy who wanted good science in all of his stories. And that's what he was lauded for, insisting that his writers include good quality science in their stories. So that kind of goes against what Aldous is saying. But I think he's, he's not really objecting to the science as much as he is the narrow orthodoxies and cultural chauvinism, that to me indicates that he feels that the scope of science fiction was somehow limited by the fact that the astronauts were always portrayed as brave Americans with a military background who were scientists. You've convinced me. Hearing that quote more than once, I see the meaning better. It's more talking about tropes and themes. Tropes is probably a good way to put it, that there's certain tropes that, that he considered to be limiting in science fiction. I don't see that because I think you can write good science fiction. Well, for instance, right now I'm writing a military science fiction novel. And that probably falls into some of the tropes that he found to be distressing. But just like any form, you have a lot of freedom within a trope or a subgenre. There are certain things that you have to do to appeal to the audience for that sort of story. But if you're a good writer, you find a way to do that. You find a way to tell a story that you want to tell that adheres to those audience expectations. And I don't have a problem with that. To me, that's one of the differences between a literary-oriented writer and a storytelling oriented writer which is what I consider myself is that 
I'm always thinking of the audience. I'm always thinking, okay, is the audience going to like this? And certainly, even when you're a storyteller, concerned about your audience, there's still times when you may want to confound the expectations of your readers a little bit, just to maybe surprise them or take them in a place they wouldn't have expected to go. But it still comes around to consciously thinking, okay, what are my readers going to expect here? And I have no problem with that. But if you're a literary writer, you shouldn't even think about the audience. I'm not a literary writer, but that's always my conception of what a literary do- writer does is I don't care what anybody thinks. I'm, I'm following my muse. I'm emulating my heroes. I'm writing out of my soul, you know, whatever. Making the grand point, kind of a John Cheever sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's what Aldous, in part, was getting to, was he wanted to see science fiction become grown up like literary fiction and uh, not give a damn about audience expectations and limitations and tropes, but to preoccupy itself with the art of writing and, and higher purpose and so forth. He just gives me this impression of wanting an absolutely pure form of it to spring up and not actually be published in anywhere popular, but suddenly it's a hugely accepted literary field. Well, yeah, maybe what he was conceptualizing was that science fiction stories would be published in mainstream magazines, which they were. You know, Ray Bradbury was published in Saturday Evening Post. I think he was like the first. Yeah, one of the first. Who was it that we uh, recently we did an episode where one of the authors was published in, oh, George Langellan, who wrote the story The Fly oh. that was turned into two movies. That was published in Playboy magazine. And as we talked about in that episode, at one time, that was highly prestigious to be published in a Playboy magazine. My dad tried a lot. I I bet every writer in America submitted a story to Playboy magazine. They paid so much. So I think that's what maybe Aldous was thinking about was he wanted to see science fiction appearing in these loftier environments like the high-end magazines, Harper's. Saturday Evening Post, trying to think of a few other vaunted literary magazines over the years. Those horrible university yearly publications. Oh, well, you know, your your literary journal. Yeah. You know, which, good, good Lord, I don't think I ever want to read one of those. So I think that's what he was aiming towards. But let me just point out a couple of points here in defense of the ghetto. As we said before, here in, in other episodes, the popularity of science fiction, the expanded popularity of science fiction inspired many good and great writers to write science fiction, to join the field. It also inspired non-writers. There are many, 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 many NASA scientists and engineers and astronauts who say, oh yeah, science fiction made me want to go to the stars. Science fiction made me want to become an astrophysicist. Just recently, we lost Nichelle Nichols, Uh, Lieutenant Uhura from Star Trek. And when she passed away, there were a number of African-American scientists and NASA engineers and some astronauts who said, oh yeah, I was inspired to go to NASA because of Nichelle Nichols, because of her character in Star Trek. You know, you want to talk about having an impact on the world. How many people were like, oh yeah, John Wayne made me want to be a cowboy. Well, you know, how many of them actually became cowboys? You know, 
<laughs> Clint Eastwood wanted me wanted me made me want to join the police force and beat people up. <laughs> well, I was going to say John Wayne made a lot of people want to become fascists. <laughs> so, but you know, science fiction can point to example after example after example of people who went on to achieve important things in life because they were science fiction fans when they're in their youth. So that ghetto was important. I'm sure. Brian Aldous hated Star Trek. He probably thought Star Trek was crap. Didn't he have an original series episode? No, no, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure he didn't. Do we recall, because it's killing me, what of his writing might I remember? Uh, I believe Frankenstein Unbound. That's the one no. that always r comes to my mind, which I actually read years and years ago, um, which I remember being pretty good. It was. The ending was a little abrupt. Just a bit. It felt like the last page had been torn out by accident, yeah, honestly. It's, it's, it's so far long ago that I really don't remember a lot of it. But I do remember that I enjoyed it. I thought it was a good book. And I don't know. I'm not familiar with anything else that he's written. I'm the newbie here in science fiction, so I've got a lot of catching up to do. So that's my defense of the science fiction ghetto. The only other thing I would say that in movies, you get a progression of you have... For instance, the movie Star Wars. If the movie Star Wars wouldn't have been made and wouldn't have been successful, you wouldn't have had the movie Alien, you know, which is a superior science fiction movie, and many other quality science fiction movies. So you need Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon and Star Wars in science fiction, I think, to help keep the genre alive so that you can have, quote-unquote, serious adult science fiction thrive and, and continue. Uh, that's my defense of the science fiction ghetto. Do you have anything to add to that? I would just be restating what you said. And you know I like to do analogies, and, and I keep thinking that it's like maybe like a log cabin where the crappy stories are the mortar that holds the good stuff together. Yeah, you, certainly. You know, here's another analogy. The science fiction ghetto stories are the bacon in the delicious bacon dressing salad. For just a second there, I thought we had managed to find a sponsor. <laughs> we'll work on that. So, you know, sorry, Mr. Aldis. I just think you were way off base on this. Hugo Gernsbach certainly had his faults. But I do agree with Aldis when he says that he was a terrible editor, that he was an indifferent and terrible editor. He was not a science fiction fan. I don't think he had a clue, really, what was good and what was bad. But he always hired editors to do that job for him and in some cases he did manage to hire some good editors his treatment of writers was terrible he ripped them off regularly there's a lot of writers that just hated Hugo Gernsbach but on the other hand he did create the genre he did solidify the genre of science fiction in America at least and he helped popularize it in the early days to where it grew to the point where it had a self-sustaining fan base well, that kind of brings up the idea that a genre is not just the stories, it's the readers. Right. And you look at right now, and we try not to delve into the present too much, but I think that the movie studios are killing off the superhero genre in movies right now because they're turning away from the audience. That may have been what happened to Western movies, is that in the 1960s and certainly in the 1970s, you began to see the anti-Western, the revisionist Western that kind of turned the tropes and the uh, elements of the Western on their head. And maybe that alienated a lot of 
fans of the Western, and they moved away from the Western. They moved to some other genre. Certainly the boxing stories were probably a mirror of the decline in the popularity of boxing. Aviation stories, you know, it was a similar kind of a thing, but I think it's possible for a genre to lose hold of its readers and of its fans and kill itself. So I think the relationship between a genre and its fans is essential, and science fiction is the one of the few genre, genres that really, over the years, over the decades, has managed to keep that relationship strong. Yeah. That's it for episode 13. Please tune in next week for another journey into the golden age of science fiction. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the stars. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.